few weeks ago, I asked uh, Glenn. Um, Glenn had been asking if anyone wanted to uh, to give a message uh, towards the end of August, as he takes a little bit of a break to refocus on Matthew and kind of study up. And I said I was willing. Um, and I asked him, "What do you want me to preach on?" And he and he said, "Oh, something controversial." So I picked First Corinthians twelve. Uh, which has been a controversial passage. In some ways, uh, I think, I think, you know, it shouldn't be a controversial passage, what we just read. And yet, many of us, uh, and I think this is going to become clear as we, we go through this today, many of us have run across all kinds of different interpretations of what this passage means, because it's a passage about spiritual gifts. And over the last uh, 100 years or so, spiritual gifts have been debated and discussed uh, and talked about and fought about. Uh, in countless churches around the world. And my hope today is not to entirely avoid those, but to mostly avoid those disagreements. I do, however, think that this passage is important for us to study, um, not just in general, but important for us in terms of where we are in the life of our church. This afternoon, after our worship service, we're going to be looking at the church's um, new strategy document that's been put together over the last six months, eight months, somewhere around there. Uh, on behalf of a church, because we have experienced a lot of challenges over the last two years. Um, some of you may remember this COVID thing. Sorry, that was a poor attempt at a joke. <laughs> We're still going through this COVID thing, obviously. No, COVID has been really hard, not just with our church, but with so many churches around the globe. We have had to shut down, we've had to do things online, we've had to learn to do things that we never thought we would have to do, but it has been very difficult not just for churches in general, but for our church. At the same time that we were going through this COVID thing, we changed locations. We, as a you know, largely oriented towards students kind of church, we've had turnover. Our rector resigned and went off to do graduate study of his own uh, back in, well, he announced it in September and he left in December. And as a church, we've been looking for what are, where are we supposed to go in terms of our direction? These are some of the challenges that we, as a church, have very concretely been facing over the last few years. And, as I mentioned, we have been taking some interim deliberations. We've been thinking through strategy. We have been revisiting our vision as a church and trying to figure out, okay, where is God taking us at this moment? And there are a lot of uncertainties. And I hope that the document that the leadership team is going to present to you here in a few minutes is, is going to be very satisfactory and you're, it's going to be inspiring and you're going to raise your hand and say, here I am, Pastor Glenn, send me. Um, but there is a lot of uncertainty and there are questions that many of us are going to have. And it's into this that I would like to bring a Corinthian context. And by Corinthian, I don't just mean the letter in Corinth, but I mean the church in Corinth. The primary challenge that was impacting the church in Corinth, they had a lot of things going on. They had ministries, they had outreach, people were coming to the Lord, they were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul himself, who tended to spend only a few weeks at different churches as he went and he trained up new leaders in a few weeks and left them completely on their own to run a church, he spent three years in Corinth, which tells you, I think, just how messed up they really were. This was, a, this was a problem church, and if you begin, begin in chapter 1 and you begin reading through Corinth, you begin to get a sense of how problematic this church was. You had people that were doing crazy things and suggesting crazy things, but the worst of it all, it wasn't the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. It wasn't, it wasn't the people that were getting drunk when they came to Holy Communion. It was the divisions that were happening in the church in Corinth. 
Paul identifies a problem in Corinth. And unfortunately, while those first two examples that I raised are probably unfamiliar to you, I hope they are unfamiliar to you, the problem that Paul isolated is that some people said, I'm following Peter, and others people said, I'm following Paul. I'm following Cephas, I'm following Jesus, I'm following whoever. And what was happening? There were divisions, what we today would call schisms, that were making their way into the church. And Paul's strategy, as he addresses the questions that lie, at, in some ways, at the heart of those divisions, and the heart of those schisms, is to get back to the basics. To give you an example, for instance, in addressing the issue of should we eat food sacrificed to idols in a predominantly pagan culture with a predominantly Gentile believer base there in Corinth, the issue of should I go down to the market and buy something which has been used in pagan worship and offered to, sac to pagan idols, should I go and make a, a nice ragu out of that? Or should I pick something else? And what does Paul do? Paul brings them back to the basics of the gospel about how idols, they have no inherent being in and of themselves. They're false. They're fake. They are not gods. And yet, we have to, at the same time, flee idolatry. And in the middle of that, Paul drops in a whole discussion of what it means for us to participate in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, finding its climax in a discussion of the Lord's Supper, which is one of the only discussions, explicit discussions of the Lord's Supper, that we have in the New Testament. Paul goes back to basics in each part of this. And today, I would, and, to, and next week, this is going to be a two-parter, I would like us to consider his going back to the basics in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. The question on the table for the Corinthian church was, what do we do about spiritual gifts? Paul doesn't necessarily get to the specifics of their question until chapter 14, when he begins to compare prophecy and speaking in tongues. But you can already begin to sense that there is some real tension going on here in chapter 12. And I think that this discussion that he brings in at this point will be of help to us as a church, to you in general, in your Christian walk, in whatever church you may end up after today. You may be a member of another church. You may head off to another church when you graduate from university or when you move to another city. But I think our discussion today is going to help us understand what the ministry is all about. Because Paul's emphasis here, he wants to talk about all of their diversity of ministries, all of their diversity of gifts, how all of this contributes to their life as the body of Christ, as they, with all of the various different kinds of things going on in their church, with all of that going on, Paul, in this first part of chapter 12, wants to bring it in and say all of that is made possible only because of the unity that we have as believers. That is, I think the big point here, our church's diversity in our members and our ministries is rooted inherently in our church's unity. We live in a pluralistic age where I think sometimes we have a hard time seeing the forest for the trees. We get so caught up in, okay, we have so many different kinds of people. We have so many different ministries going on. We are doing so many different things out in the world. But where all of that comes from, from what Paul says, is that it all comes back to the unity that we have in God. Which means that we, in our ministry as a church, will become compromised if we find a worldly unity 
that substitutes for the unity that we are supposed to have. A genuine unity that is able to produce genuine spiritual diversity in members, in membership and in ministry. If we want to keep doing what we're doing, if we want to grow as a church in the direction that we are going to need to grow, I want us to revisit this unity that we have. So the question for us today is, what is the substance and the source of this unity? And as a good preacher, I made sure that my sermon is going to come into three main points. The first is that the substance and source of this unity is Jesus. The second is that it's God. And the third is that it's the Holy Spirit. So you have a nice little Trinitarian summary there. And with no further ado, I want to encourage us to begin with the first one. We are one because of who Jesus is. We are one because of who Jesus is. And this, I think, brings us to the first three verses there. Let me just go over them here briefly for you. Paul begins this section by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. My first observation here, as we give this a quick look, is that this does not sound like an introduction to a talk about spiritual gifts. I don't know. Is that fair? I mean, Talking about, is Jesus anathema or is Jesus Lord, what does that have to do with whether or not my spiritual gift is healing people or administering the church's finances, right? Come on, Paul, what, what are you doing here? What's the point? I think what Paul is doing here is really important as he sets up his argument in chapter 12. Let's turn first to the immediate context of what Paul is talking about. I mentioned in my introduction that Paul has been addressing the question of idolatry and meat that was sacrificed to idols right? What is our relationship as believers to the idols that we find in the world around us? And this was, this was a real thing in Corinth. Corinth was notorious not just for being, in, being a city of immorality, but it being a city of idolatry. It was located very close, for instance, to Delphi. Am I saying that right, Glenn? Delphi? Or is it Delphi? Yeah, I don't know. Delphi, where the, where the Sibyl, the oracle of Apollo, Apollos was. And there at Delphi, they would go and receive the oracles. And, and I think it was thought that the Sibyl would, would sort of stand over top of a, a, of a vent where noxious gas was coming out. And she would go into a trance and she would just give these mutterings. Mutter, 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 mutter. And people would be there and they would write it down. And then they would try to make sense out of it. And that would, you know, tell people what they needed to do with the empire or whatever. It's a little strange, right? But this was the kind of thing that was, that was going on at Corinth. This was the kind of thing that the Gentile believers had been doing up until very recently, until just a few years before, they had been totally into this idolatry business. And it is here that Paul wants to make a contrast with what the church is. Because the questions that they were asking in terms of the mutterings of speaking in tongues I think had a lot to do with what was happening in the broader culture around them. On the one hand, you had people that were saying, are these mutterings pagan? Right? When people were speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, you had some people that said, are they, are they drunk at nine in the morning? We cannot understand what these people are saying. Are they just babbling nonsense? And I think you had some of the people that were listening to the people speaking in tongues and saying, is this just a bunch of nonsense? Like I could get at the Oracle down in Delphi. Is this pagan? 
But then you had other people that were saying, I don't know, this is pretty miraculous stuff. When I listen to the people speaking in tongues and I have the gift of interpretation, I realize what they are saying in this particular language, and this is more miraculous than anything that I could have ever thought possible. And the question becomes, are these actually a superior gift than all of the others? Should we, for instance, as some traditions have begun to do, consider these gifts as the most important, even markers of who belongs to God and who doesn't? What I think the context does, however, is it takes the gifts that God gives us, it takes the identity of who the church really is, and it puts us in the framework, which I'm going to say is an end times kind of framework that we pick up from the Old Testament, and that is of a showdown between the idols of the nations and between the only true God, the God of Israel. We see this, for instance, in the book of Exodus and in the prophetic interpretation of the book of Exodus that comes through prophets like Isaiah. As they interpret what happened when God went down to Egypt and he brought his people up, it was a showdown between him and the gods of the nations. The ten plagues that were, that were delivered to, the, to Egypt, right? The water of the Nile turning to blood. Well, what was that? That was a showdown between the God of the Nile and the God of Israel. And who won? It was the God of Israel. When, when the sky was turned to darkness, well, it was the sun god Ra versus the God of Israel, the Lord, and who won? It was the Lord. And the way that the Old Testament imagines the end times, what we sometimes call the eschaton, the way that the Old Testament imagines it is that the end times, the last day, is when God comes and he breaks all of the idols into pieces. You get a vision of this in Daniel, for instance, when this glorious image that has been constructed with a head of gold representing Babylon and a chest of silver representing Persia and uh, a torso of bronze representing Greece, and then you've got the legs and feet made of iron and clay representing the Roman Empire. What happens when the kingdom comes? It smashes this idol to pieces. And here, Paul ties into that, and he reminds us that the deceit of the idols, their lying, has been thrown down by the one who has come, who is the image of God, the invisible, the visible image of the invisible God, who is Jesus Christ. The silence of the idols, because they can't see, they can't hear, they can't feel, they can't speak. And as Psalm 115 would remind us, everyone who worships an idol becomes like them. Well, it has been destroyed by the word of God, God's, God's verboseness becoming made flesh, as we, as we learn in John chapter 1. When the word becomes flesh, the message of God and the speaking of God becomes made known to us in a more powerful way than we could ever imagine. And finally, we have the power of the idols, which has been destroyed by the wisdom of God. And I say the power of the idols because the way that Paul sets this up is that this is, he sets this up in terms of two stock phrases or two slogans. You have, on the one hand, Jesus is Lord, and on the other hand, you have anathema to Jesus. That is, Jesus is accursed. And some commentators think that this, is, uh, this was actually a slogan that people that were opposed to Chris Christians in Corinth went around saying, maybe under their breath, maybe openly, but they would say, anathema Jesus. Jesus is cursed. But I think Paul might also be making a sort of elliptical reference to an, another parallel slogan, rather than saying, Jesus is Lord, saying what? Caesar is Lord. The interesting thing is that behind the worship of the idols is often a political presence. Most of the early Christians, they got into trouble not because they, didn't, they wouldn't just worship Apollos or Zeus 
or whoever, but because they would not offer sacrifices to the emperor. The Christians were making a political statement when they insisted that Jesus, and not Caesar, was Lord. Paul is recognizing this, this showdown, which is occurring in the midst of the church through the practice of spiritual gifts. That when this, the Spirit has been given, when the Spirit has been poured out, in order to enable someone to say Jesus is Lord, rather than Jesus is accursed, with, without regard to whatever language it is being spoken in, Paul is recognizing that through that outpouring, we are seeing the visible image of the invisible God. But we are experiencing the power and the wisdom of a God who makes known his power and his wisdom in Jesus Christ going to the cross, regardless of how counterintuitive that might be. In chapter, in chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians, he makes it clear that the wisdom and the power of God are made known in the weakness and in the suffering of his very son, which is what smashes the idols which loosens tongues, and which is the first thing that the people of Corinth need to realize as they figure out what is the source of their unity. Is it, it is Jesus himself, because unlike all of the idols out there, where in, even in Athens, you, Paul says, I don't know how many idols you guys have. You even have one that's to an unknown God. But here, the one and only God has made himself known, and it is in Jesus Christ. So what is the alternative? For the church the alternative is that we can sometimes try to find our sense of unity in an earthly leader maybe a charismatic politician or more likely in our case a charismatic pastor now glenn you're very charismatic i don't want to say you're not but i've been a part of churches where the reason why people are there is because of the pastor the sense of unity that they have is because they like the pastor because they believe the pastor because they follow the pastor and I understand that there is a very human need to, to connect with the leadership in the church. I understand that. I get it. But it is not where the unity of our church lies. Paul's insight here is that he is able to distinguish between the speaker and the speech. Our united witness is what legitimates our speakers and our expressions. Regardless of what language they are speaking, regardless of what intonation that they are using, it is the message that matters. This is why I think one of, you know, the basic interpretive questions that we have to ask when we come to this paragraph is saying, wait, hold on. You're saying that if someone says Jesus is Lord, even if they don't mean it, that the Holy Spirit is somehow empowering them to say it. Are you saying that everybody that says Jesus is Lord is going to heaven or something because they have the Holy Spirit? Doesn't Jesus say many will come and say, Lord, Lord, but he never knows them? Those two things are true. What we're saying here is that every time the gospel is enunciated, regardless of the heart of the person who is enunciating it, regardless of their personal relationship with the Lord, the fact that the gospel is going out, the gospel is being preached, is important, and it is the Holy Spirit who is empowering even an unbeliever to speak the gospel. Because it is not the person up here at the pulpit. Pastor Glenn, Keith, our former rector, certainly not myself, it is none of us who are the principle of unity in our church. It is Jesus Christ. We find unity when we bear witness to him. Paul wants us to understand that, that diverse, even unintelligible tongues, different languages, different cultures, are no obstacle to unity. 
because the utterance concerning Jesus is the focus and not the speaker. And that is why later he is able to say that there are many varieties of ministry because there is one Lord who is behind all of them. So what does this mean? We discover our unity in Christ when our witness to him remains undivided. Because our unity is found in a person, not so much a principle. And our unity is found in the person of Jesus himself, not in a pastor or a politician. And this unity is expressed not in theory. This is not a unity that's on paper. Ultimately, our constitutions and canons, even this new fantastic strategy document that we're putting together, it's all on paper. Our unity is found in Jesus. Well, let me go on and say that our unity also occurs because of who God is. It's my point too. It's because of who Jesus is, but it's also because of who God is. Join with me in looking at verse 4 to 6. Here we get to one of the great expressions of Trinitarian theology in the New Testament. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I went a little bit further than I needed to, but there we go. In verses 4 to 6, that's the gist of what I'm getting here. A quick look at this suggests that there are, of course, three divine persons, right? The Spirit, the Lord, and God. And this is Paul's usual way of talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father. And these three persons are connected to three kinds of diversities or dispensations. The idea here is, for instance, when you dispense, let's say you dispense mail in a bunch of mailboxes. This is the kind of variety and dispensation that we're talking about. The Spirit dispenses giftings or capacities, powers. Jesus dispenses ministries, offices, uh, kinds of authority. And God is the Father, is described as distributing some kind of effectiveness, workings, energema. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this here in a few minutes, but this is a really technical word for Paul, as it was for most people in the first century in the Mediterranean. But I want to remind us that just like there is an eschatological, an end times showdown that happens between God and the idols, there is also an end times, last days focus here in verses 4 to 6. And we can see this from the expression as we talk about the Father, he is the one who empowers them all in everyone. This, this expression of working, these, he is the one that works them all in all, even though we might want to translate it into English a little bit differently in this passage, is repeated by Paul in chapter 15, verse 28, when Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus and connecting it to the resurrection of all flesh. Paul says, for instance, that God is submitting everything under the feet of Jesus. Quoting from Psalm 110, he has placed all things under his feet, the one who died for us, the one who rose again for us, the one who ascended up to heaven for us. He is placing all things in heaven and on earth under the feet of Jesus until the last day. And on that last day and on the day of judgment, it says Jesus will take all of what he has been given and he will hand it over to the Father. He will hand the kingdom over to his Father and God, it says, will then be all in all. In other words, Paul is preparing our readers for the resurrection and for the last day 
by talking about what God is doing in the church right now. What God is doing in the church right now, in and through each one of us, in and through the various members of the church, with their many spiritual gifts and with their many offices, with their many responsibilities, and their many different kinds of authority, he is the one who even right now, in each and every one of you, is bringing together the resurrection power of God. This is the same phrase he uses in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, where he talks about how the body of Christ, the church, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That Jesus Christ, as the one who is the fulfillment and realization of all of human history and of all of God's purposes for the world, he is the one who is embodying all of this. And this is also made clear because, of the, again, the word that I said that Paul is using here in terms of work. The word here actually is the same word that we get the word energy from. And it is a technical word that was, was basically defined by Aristotle. And most of the time when preachers want to appeal to Plato and Aristotle in their sermons, they go, bah, Plato and Aristotle were not all that popular in the first century in the Greco-Roman world, which is true, except for this. Because the political philosophy, or the, the philosophies of the day, the religious philosophies of the day, the Stoics and the Epicureans actually did pretty much take this from Aristotle and use it exactly like Aristotle intended. When Aristotle is talking about energy or working, he's talking about two different things. The first is the active exercise of a capacity. That is, what you are actually happen and being used. That is, you know, if you were, a, let's say that you are a dog, right? And a dog has the capacity to bark. The energy of the dog is realized in the dog's barking and doing what he has the capacity of doing. Weird analogy, I know. I just came up with it on the spur of the moment, but I'm trying here, okay? Everything has an energy that can be realized and developed. It doesn't matter if you're a tree or an acorn. It doesn't matter if you're God himself. There is an energy, a capacity that you have that can be put into action. But for Aristotle, it is also the actualization of everything that you are. It's the becoming everything that you are supposed to be. Now, God is always everything that he already is and will always be. And yet, Paul takes this language of working and energy, of self-actualization, and he applies it to the church. Because it is in the church that we see God at work in such a way that God makes himself known and manifests himself and is becoming God is not becoming, but he is making us become a first fruit of that new creation. God's purpose at work in the world is the church of Jesus Christ. And he is its source of unity as he is at work in our midst and in our members. Now, the alternative is what? We, in our, in our church, we can begin to make the source of our unity, what our church is all about, well, our own well-meaning goals and jobs and roles and what we want to get done. And we need to put together, for instance, a strategic plan and vision. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that we shouldn't. We absolutely need to. But we cannot, we cannot make our strategies, our goals, our purposes, our very concrete goals and purposes, the center of the unity of our church, because the center of the unity of our church is God himself at work among us. Those plans that we have, the strategy that we have, the vision that we have even, it can change. At times it should. We have to adapt. 
but our unity does not, because our unity is based on what God is doing. Paul's insight is that God is at work in our midst, and it is his activity that brings us together as one. Reading 1 Corinthians 12 in light of 1 Corinthians 15 will help us understand that he has raised the body of Jesus Christ from the dead, and it is into that body that he has incorporated us. We'll talk more about this next week as we get into the analogy of the body. But he is working through us visibly as the body of Jesus Christ. So God raises the body of Jesus from the dead. He makes us a part of that body, and then he uses us as a part of that body as his arms, as his mouth, as his feet in the world. And he's doing this. He is working out his purposes despite our limitations. I remember one of my professors in my undergrad saying one of the most amazing things that he had experienced in all of his 40-something years on earth as a professor of philosophy was being a part of a little church plant and realizing that the best, the best moments in church planting were not so much when God used you, but when God worked despite you. And all you had to do was show up and watch what God was going to do. In other words, there are many varieties of operations, as he says here, because there is one God. So, what does this mean for us? We uncover our unity in God when we focus on what he is doing, and not what we are doing, or what we think we need to be doing. In other words, our unity is expressed in God's concrete action, and not our own. And our unity, then, is echoed in how we mirror God's action in so many different ways. But our mirroring of that action is not the principle of unity. Our unity is about what God is doing. And it is the first fruits of the consummative unity of the new creation, already tasteable, tangible, knowable in our midst. Now this leads to my third point. We said we are one because of who Jesus is. We are one because of who God is. Finally, we are one because of who the Holy Spirit is. We come to verses 7 to 11. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. So this raises all kinds of questions. For instance, what are these gifts even here? What are they? When it talks about a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom, what is that? And I will tell you, people have all kinds of different ideas about what that is. I will just, I will be straight with you. And part of the problem is that this is the only time that some of those words even exist in the New Testament. It's what we call, in fancy speak, a hapax. This is a one-time occurrence. How are you supposed to know what a word is if you've only heard it once? Well, based on context, I think we can put some of these things together, but it's a little tough. Another question on a related issue is, when he talks about the gift of tongues, are we talking about actual human languages that people are speaking? 
or we could talk about ecstatic speech that no human being has ever heard before, the angelic kind of language that some people feel like they are speaking. What is the gift of tongues? Especially when so many of us have never actually experienced it for ourselves. Another question. We have these lists of gifts. Are these lists like the list of these are the spiritual gifts that are out there? And for those of you who have taken some of these spiritual gift inventories, I don't know if you've any, ever done this, but you know, when I used to go on youth camps, they'd give us a, a sort of questionnaire like you get when you do the, do the P, like the SAT or something, and you had to fill out, yeah, I like doing this, and I don't like doing this. And you get a list of, okay, here are the spiritual gifts, and I get this one, this one, this one, this one. Is that how this works? That this is a definitive list? Or is this just kind of a, a representative sampling of all kinds of spiritual gifts that there may be even more besides them? And then, of course, one of the biggest questions. Are these gifts even still present today? Or are they for the past? I don't have all the answers here. I'm not going to pretend to. However, I want to suggest a few things because I want to get past these questions and I want to get to what I think Paul really thinks is important. I think part of what Paul thinks is important is, in fact, none of these questions. First of all, what are the gifts here? Well, I'm going to say that I think many of them are miraculous gifts. Things like demonstrations of power, miraculous healings. I think these are, these are spiritual, supernatural gifts that the community in Corinth was experiencing. And they were trying to figure out what was going on with them. In terms of the gifts of tongues, were they actual human languages or are they ecstatic speech? My sense based on Acts chapter 2 and on the day of Pentecost is that these are actual languages. That's why you could actually have miraculous interpreters as well that could be verified. I mean, I could stand up here and just start saying all kinds of words that you don't understand, and someone else could come up and say, well, this is what he said. But you still don't know if that's true. What it takes is having somebody that actually speaks the language. Um, just to give you an example, of the pastor who mentored me and sponsored me for ordination umpteen years ago, 13 years ago. Uh, back when he was in college, he was in a prayer group, and they were all sitting around praying, and suddenly someone started praying in another language. And everybody stopped, and they looked, at, and he finally stopped praying, and they said, well, what was that? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, you just prayed in another language. What language were you, pre were, were you praying in? It was like, I wasn't praying in another language. And they went back and forth on this. And then someone else in the prayer group spoke up and said, actually, he was not speaking English, he was speaking French, uh, Quebecois. And that is my native, my native tongue, my mother tongue is that. And he said, and what you told me, well, you, you told me that I needed to go reconcile with my father, that I don't have much time left. So the guy left, flew back to Montreal or Quebec City or wherever he was from, reconciled with his father, he was estranged. And about a month later, his father had a heart attack and died. I'm not telling you this because that is God's word. I'm going to play Paul here and say, this is I, not the Lord, telling you this. But I think that that kind of a situation better represents what we see in Acts chapter 2, where an actual language is being spoken, and speakers of that language are present, and there are also miraculous gifts of interpretation. I think that is a better way of understanding that. And in the next chapter, in chapter 13, when Paul says, whether I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but have not love, I am nothing, which is sometimes used to suggest that this is ecstatic speech, um, speech that has no human counterpart. I'd just like to say that I think Paul is just being 
a little poetic and he's being, you know, a little, he's got a little flourish. I could even speak in the tongue of angels, but if I don't have love, then I'm nothing. I would love to talk more about this, but I'm going to have to move on for the sake of time. So the question then is, are these lists definitive or representative? I do think that they are representative because if you compare the lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible, we have three sets of lists just in chapter 12. They don't all match up. Paul mentions some gifts in some, and he doesn't mention them in others. And if you go to Romans chapter 12 or Ephesians chapter 4, you can do the same thing, and the, the lists of gifts don't match up. I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, here is a representative sample of the kinds of spiritual gifts that are out there. And interestingly, this is the only lists in which he actually places the gifts of tongues are only in 1 Corinthians 12, which I think, along with some other commentators, I would agree that this means that even Paul was trying to suggest that this is not the most important of the spiritual gifts that are out there. Now, are the gifts still present or have they passed away? I think, I think my answer here has already probably shown that I think that spiritual gifts are still here and being practiced. In fact, I think it's important to what Paul is saying that we who have received the Holy Spirit need to receive the gifts that he has to offer. However, I just wanna say as well that we should not expect every single gift to appear in every particular kind of context. There are times where you need a gift of tongues. There are times that you need a gift of interpretation. There are times that you need a gift of prophecy. There are times that you may need a gift of administration. In fact, probably more often than in almost any of the spiritual gifts, we need gifts of administration. But that doesn't mean that they always happen. It doesn't mean that they have gone away. I think that we need to take into account the purpose for why these spiritual gifts are being given. And I want then to come to what I think Paul wants to place as the emphasis here. Paul says that the Spirit himself is the primary gift. He is one with the Father in his willing and in his working. And when the Spirit is giving these gifts, it is not something like the Spirit is handing you a blank check and sending you away. What the Spirit is doing is saying, I have come and I am going to be with you. I am going to remain with you as Jesus promised, and I'm going to stay with you. And I come and I bring my gifts. But the primary gift of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit. I don't have time to get into all of the biblical background here. I preached a sermon on it back at, on the day of Pentecost. But let me just say that we do see that this is an end time fulfilling of the Old Testament prophecy about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who was there present creating the world uh, in Genesis chapter one, the Spirit who comes and indwells that tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 40. That Spirit who, for instance, is poured out on David as is anointed by the prophet Samuel and empowered for ministry. This Holy Spirit was prophesied in the Old Testament to be brought to the people, that they would be sprinkled with clean water through the Holy Spirit, that they would drink deeply from these wells, that the Spirit would lead them and guide them as he did once again. And here we find the fulfillment in the life of Christ, as he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is incarnate of the Virgin Mary. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he is baptized in the river Jordan by John the Baptist. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's risen from the dead. We see it on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit is poured out. And as Peter points them toward the ultimate coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of the Lord, on that last and final day, the Holy Spirit has been prophesied and brings into the present that future reality that God has promised, which we often call the kingdom. Now, the Spirit brings gifts. 
brings capacities. He brings power. But the problem becomes when we focus on those powers and on those gifts, and we make them the source of unity. It is precisely Paul's point that because there are a diversity of gifts, even if they come from God, those gifts themselves are not the focus of unity. It is the Holy Spirit himself, the one and the same Spirit, as he keeps saying, who gives all of these different abilities. When we make our own talents and opportunities, the capacities that we have, whether they are naturally given to us in birth or whether they have been given to us in baptism, we are skewing the substance of our unity. Paul's insight here is that what matters for our unity in Christ is less the gifts that we bring and more the act of self-giving itself, whether that's God's giving himself to us or our giving ourselves to one another. In Christian theology, we usually end up at the conclusion that the Spirit is the Father's enduring gift to his Son. And the Spirit, as Jesus tells us, is the Son's enduring gift to us. That is why he is the one who pours him out. He is the one who pours the Holy Spirit out on us on the day of Pentecost. As we just sang, and and I want to thank Jake for for including the song, the Come Holy Spirit. We continue to ask that that Spirit would be poured out on us. But then what does the Holy Spirit do? He turns around and he makes us his enduring gifts to one another. This is why, as we get further into this passage, what what gifts has God given the church? He's given apostles, not apostleship, but the apostles themselves were God's gift to the church. He doesn't just give a spirit of prophecy. He gives the prophets to the church. He doesn't just give a gift of teaching. He gives the teachers to the church and so on and so forth. You could go down the line. It's not just that he brings a gift of healing. He brings healers to the church, which means, my beloved brothers and sisters, you are the gift of God. I don't just mean it in the sense of, you know, some arrogant person that says, well, you know, I'm just God's gift to mankind. I mean it in the sense of God has given himself to you, and he's turning around and giving you to your brothers and sisters, not just in the world, but especially in the church. So what does this mean for us? We recover our unity in the Holy Spirit, but above all else, we receive God's love. We give ourselves to one another in love. It is no accident that Paul follows chapter 12 with chapter 13, which is the famous passage on love. And I know it gets read at weddings, And I don't want to say it doesn't have anything to do with marriage. It certainly does. Right, honey? Yeah. (laughs) But it is about way more than marriage. Paul talks about how we give ourselves to one another. How we lay down our lives for one another. Paul is quick to say that, you know what, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they are ceasing. They're going away, but love endures forever. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Is love, and love is not a feel-good feeling for Paul. Love is the tangible act of laying down your life for your brother or your sister in the same way that Christ laid down his life for you. That is the principle of unity that lies behind these spiritual gifts. We will talk about the diversity next week. Next week, we are going to talk about what it means to be a body, what it means to be an ear, an eye, a hand, a foot, an appendix, whatever it is. 
But for now, Paul wants us to understand that the most important thing is love, which means, I think practically, that our unity as a church is impossible without goodwill. You cannot love someone without having goodwill towards them, without wanting the best for them. Our unity is impossible without sacrifice. It is impossible to love someone without giving something up. And finally, it means that our unity is impossible without presence, without showing up, without being there for the other person, not just emotionally, not just online, but whenever and wherever possible, showing up in person to express your love for the other person. Well, let me wrap things up here a little bit, tie a bow on it, come to a few conclusions. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, the night he was betrayed, as John tells the story, he goes off and he prays. And while the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell the story that he prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, if it's your will, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. By the way John tells it, he goes before his father and he says, Father, it's time. I've done the work that you have given me to do. I've glorified you in this world, and now I'm returning to you. And I ask that you would glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And I ask that you would do this, that you would do this, why? Not just for my sake, but for those that I love. And he says, I ask that you would make them one, as you and I are one. That the love that we have for one another, that they would have for themselves. I don't know if Jesus prayed any greater prayer than that prayer for his church. And I want, coming back to what Paul is saying in this passage and to our situation here as Christ the King, I want to ask a question. Are we standing united? Are we standing in the love that Jesus has prayed that we would stand in? exhibiting the love that he has given us an example for? Are we embodying the love that he has given us by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are we united in the message of the gospel? Are we united in what God is doing in our midst? Where is our unity and are we united? It is so easy for a church to fragment, both formally and informally. And by that, I mean, I've been a part of church splits. I've been a part of a church um, that shortly after I left, but my wife was still there, underwent a horrible church split. It was the best little church that you could imagine. And looking back, I, I wonder, where, would they have, where were they finding their unity? Where were, I should say, where were we finding our unity? It wasn't, it wasn't in what we've been talking about today. And informally, I mean that a church can avoid going through a church split, but we can allow dysfunction to creep in. We can allow little arguments and divisions, sometimes big ones, to creep in and to begin to take away our unity. It's not to say that we all have to agree on everything. I hope that's one of the things that's been made clear in my sermon today. We can disagree about all kinds of things. We can delegate leadership to all kinds of people. We can be involved in one another's lives in all kinds of different ways and reach out with the love of Christ in any number of diverse 
fashions. But we have to come back and say our unity is found in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I ask these questions not because I think we're doing too poorly. I don't. But we need to ask them. We need to entrust them to God because it is God at the end of the day in whom we are going to find salvation. It is in him we are going to find healing. It is in him that we are going to find purpose. And so we give him the glory, the honor, the power, and the dominion now and into ages of ages. Amen.